Good morning, and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. Every religion, every culture makes use of objects that serve as reminders or symbols. Reminders serve to reinforce a thought or a specific set of actions or behaviors. Symbols, on the other hand, are often used to represent ideas or qualities. For instance, lowering a flag to half-mass symbolizes that a nation is in mourning, while a whole series of customs that follow the death of a relative help to constantly remind us of our personal state of mourning. In our tradition, the Jewish tradition, the Ner Tamid, the eternal flame in the synagogue, symbolizes the altar in the temple that once stood in Jerusalem, while the kippah, or yarmulke in Yiddish, that is worn by many Jews either upon entering synagogue um, or wearing all the time, reminds us of the holiness of a particular place, whether a building or life in general. Judaism has many reminders and symbols. This morning, I want to speak to you about three particular symbols that are most easily known in the Jewish world and perhaps in the non-Jewish world as well. The mezuzah, the parchment scroll fixed to the doorposts, the tefillin, often known in English as phylacteries, which we'll speak about more later, and tzitzit the fringes attached on garments, and also attached on prayer shawls. So those symbols and uh, become the focus of our conversation this morning. And I want to therefore begin, as we often do on Jewish faith and Jewish facts, by turning to the text. This morning, I want to turn to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and begin by sharing with you a section of Deuteronomy that has become an essential part of the Jewish prayer service. This is verse 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In Hebrew, it sounds like this, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the way. When you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as a symbol on your hands and write and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. This is what is known in Jewish tradition as the famous Shema text, coming from the first word in English, you heard it as here in Hebrew, Shema. It is a call to the Jewish people to recognize the oneness of God and to love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, as the text says. 
Jews are instructed to recite these words, as the text says, when we lie down and when we rise up, and to teach them, impress them upon our children. Finally, the text tells us to bind them as a sign on your hand and let them serve as a symbol on your forehead. A repetition of the mitzvah of binding is first mentioned in Exodus 13.9 and then again in 13.16. There, the binding which today is known as tefillin, serves specifically as one of the many reminders that God took us out of Egypt bondage. There we are commanded to remember at all times and to tell our children, generation after generation, of the wonders associated with the Exodus. But here in the Deuteronomy context, the tefillin, this binding of which I'll speak more uh, about in a moment, seemed to play a more general role serving to remind Jews of our responsibility to love God and to follow God's commandments. We are responsible for upholding our part of the covenant, Brit, to obey God's commandments and to serve God with all our heart and soul. And God demands in Jewish tradition not just love, but also action, the fulfillment of the commandments. God redeemed us from Egyptian bondage and crowned us as an Am Segula, a treasured people. We are consequently told to choose God and live our lives in accordance with God's will. This is referred to in the language of the rabbis in the 3rd through 15th century as Kabbalat ol mitzvot, acceptance of the yoke of the commandments. Now, the traditional tefillin consists of two small cube-like blackened leather boxes containing biblical passage. They are called in Hebrew batim. The singular is bayit, meaning a house or housing in Hebrew. These two batim become wider at the bottom with a hollow projection at the back through which a leather strap is passed. One is worn on the forehead, as it says in the text, it shall be a sign upon your arm and upon a ot, totafot, bein enecha, between your eyes. One is worn on the forehead and the other on the arm, slightly inclined towards the heart. The word tefillin, which is the word in Hebrew to describe these, is not found in the Tanakh and may be derived from the Hebrew word tefillah, meaning prayer. The term may have been applied to this ritual object because tefillin are customarily worn during prayer. However, according to others, it is purely coincidental that the word tefillin so closely resembles the word for prayer, tefillah, since although eventually the tefillin were only worn for the morning prayer, in Talmudic times between the 3rd and 5th century of the Common Era, They were worn all day and had no special association with prayer. The etymology of the term tefillin is uncertain, but possibly is connected with the Hebrew root word pelamed, hey, pela, meaning to distinguish. If this is correct, then the Jew, then we perhaps we understand the wearing of tefillin as a means whereby the member of the Jewish people is distinguished from others who are not. 
Some suggest that the word tefillin is simply the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew totafot that appears in the Torah. The English translation for tefillin is phylacteries, based on the Greek noun phylacterion, which derives from a root meaning to protect or guard. This is based on the New Testament Greek from the book of Matthews 23.5 that speaks in this way. But all their works they do be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries. This passage, critical of the Pharisees, I suggest, uses the Greek word from which the English is derived, meaning things which protect. In other words, the New Testament suggests that tefillin are a kind of safeguard or amulet to offer protection against the demonic powers. It is quite possible that at the popular level, not at the scholarly level, tefillin were regarded as being charged with magical power, able to protect the wearer from malignant influences. As is evident from this and other texts, such interpretation of this commandment do not follow the words of the Torah, which commands that the mitzvah as an oath, as a sign that reminds us of our obligation and duties. Now, to fill in signs and symbols, why do we have signs and wonders? Moses ben Nachman, a 13th century biblical commentator and legal scholar in Spain, writes the following. The awesome signs and wonders performed by God in Egypt provide true testimony to substantiate belief in God the Creator and in the entire Torah. God, however, does not perform such signs or wonders in every generation for the benefit of some wicked person or heretic. He therefore commanded us perpetually commemorate that which we have seen and to communicate it to our children and their children and their children until the end of time. God further commanded us to transcribe upon our hands and between our eyes all that we have seen in the matter of signs and wonders and to write it upon the doorposts of our homes and Ramban, Nachmanides, is referring, of course, to these phylacteries and the words inside them. So why is it so important, one would ask, to have physical, tangible objects to serve as reminders of the Exodus? The Nachmanides explains that the Exodus taught us several critical lessons about God and his interaction with humans. The miracles that were performed, according to Nachmanides, on behalf of the Jews, prove that there is a creator who can manipulate the laws of nature as desired, that God supervises the affairs of the world and intervenes when deemed necessary. According to Rambam, this 13th century commentator, the entire Torah is confirmed by the Exodus. Since miracles of this type, he writes, are seldom performed, we are told to ensure that the lessons derived from them will be maximized. 
Nachmanides, Ramban, is commentating on the passage in Exodus that relates to the importance of remembering and retelling the story of the Exodus. By celebrating the Exodus annually and by transmitting our experiences to our children and our grandchildren, most obviously at Passover time, we are reminded of God, God's power, and God's providence. By wearing the boxes or to fill in phylacteries on our arms and forehead daily, we deepen and perpetuate our awareness of these lessons. It should be pointed out that there were certain medieval and, of course, modern commentators who understood the verses in Exodus and Deuteronomy to actually be metaphors. Roshbaum, an 11th and 12th century medieval commentator, suggested that the Torah is in fact plainly instructing us that we should keep the memory of Exodus with us as it was written, as if it were written on our arms, and if it were a fancy piece of golden jewelry worn on the forehead. The Kararites, those Jews of antiquity who did not believe in the rabbinic words of the Talmud, understood it as a metaphor, drawing upon this teaching as a basis for their understanding. In addition, the modern biblical scholar Benno Jacob, living in the 19th and 20th century, wrote, we must conclude that the rabbinic custom did not originate in any commentary of our verse, no matter how it was interpreted. Even if an ordinance was intended symbolically, no aspiration should be cast upon those who took it literally. Often it was the spirit which killed while the letter retained life. Many of those who assert that they follow the spirit use this as an excuse for lack of action, while the literalist, through his very effort, maintains the idea as well. Scholars, besides Benno Jacob, also search for historical understanding of the etymological history of the word totafot. According to some scholars, the word is unique and has no other precedent in Tanakh. Tafofot is a Hebrew word, but its background is Egyptian. It would have been recognized at or at about the time of the Exodus by anyone familiar with both languages and with the religions of the Lower Egypt. The two elements of the word totafot, meaning signs, are toth and t, the names of two significant Egyptian gods. Fot was regarded by the Egyptians as the creator of the world. All the lesser gods, including Toth, were products of the divine will. Toth was the god of learning and wisdom. He invented writing, the words of God. He was the scribe of the gods and the judge of right and wrong and the afterlife. Therefore, it might be suggested that naming the head to fill in toth to uh, does not mean that the Israelites incorporated these Egyptian gods into their theology, but that perhaps these names were linguistically transformed and secularized into Hebrew to connote the general concepts of creation and scripture. Therefore, to describe a prayer box filled with scriptures 
it would be appropriate to define it as some form of tote, scripture box. In our case, a scripture box dedicated to the true creator of the world, which is where the word totafot makes its journey from the text to Jewish behavior. Now, having discussed the tefillin, let us turn to something else, right? Uh, and that is the mezuzah. The mezuzah, which many of you, the listeners, have seen on the doors on the right-hand side of the lintel as you enter the home of uh, members of the Jewish people, or perhaps you've seen it in uh, Hollywood film where somebody enters the home and takes their right hand and kisses, touches it and kisses this mezuzah. In uh, the Babylonian Talmud, again, written in between the 3rd and 6th century, we have the following phrase, following story. When Uncleus, the son of Colonimus, converted to Junaism, the Roman emperor sent a company of soldiers after him. He enticed them by citing, by citing scriptural verses, and they too converted. The emperor then sent a second troop of soldiers after him, but forewarned them not to converse with Uncleus at all. As they were about to take him prisoner, he said to them, I would like to ask you something. In a procession, the torchbearer carries the light in front of the royal litter. The officer behind the litter carries the light in front of the commander. The commander in front of the chief general, the chief general in front of the governor. Does the governor, however, carry the torch before the people? The soldier said to, the, un, to Uncleus, no, he responded, but God does carry the light before the people of Israel. For scripture says that God went before them by day in a pillar of fire to give them light from Exodus 13. Then all of them became converted as well. The emperor sent a third troop of soldiers to fetch him, but this time he said to them not to say anything at all to Uncleus. As they were escorting him away and arresting him, Uncleus saw the mezuzah fixed to the doorpost and placed his hand upon it. What is this? He asked them. You tell us, they responded. And he said to them, it is generally customary for a mortal king to safely sit within his palace while his servants serve him from without. The Holy One, blessed be he, the God eternal, however, guards his servants while they dwell within. As the verse states from Psalms 121, God will guard your going out and your coming forth from now and forever. They then converted. And according to the story, the emperor sent for Uncleus no more. Now, what is this story about? Yes? In the text from Deuteronomy, we are invited to consider another type of reminder. We are instructed, as it says in Deuteronomy, to inscribe them on the doorposts of your house on your gates. This is referred to, by tradition, as the mitzvah of mezuzah. 
just as we are required to inscribe biblical passages on our arm and forehead, we are required to inscribe passages on our doorposts as well. The word mezuzah is the Hebrew word for doorpost. The etymology of this Hebrew word is not entirely clear. Traditional sources connect this word to the root zuz, to move, perhaps a reference to people moving through the doorway. Linguists trace the word to the Akkadian nazazu, to stand, or manzazu, a doorpost. There is, however, no obligation to build a doorpost where one doesn't exist. It is the inscription that we put on the mezuzah that matters. Technically, we could put exposed parchment on the doorpost and fulfill the obligation. The casing, the beautiful casing in most instances, is just intended to protect the parchment or to beautify the mitzvah itself. Nevertheless, both the parchment with the biblical verses on it from Deuteronomy, as well as the casing that holds the parchment are collectively, colloquially called mezuzah. Extensibly, it would seem that the purpose of the mezuzah is similar in purpose to the phylacteries or tefillin, to serve as a reminder to us, the members of the covenant, to observe God's commandments and maintain our relationship with God. However, the Deuteronomic text offers another perspective on the function of the mezuzah. The Talmudic story that I shared with you indicates that there is a tradition that links Onkelos, a second century translator of the Bible into Aramaic, to Hadrian, the second century Roman Empire. The latter apparently appointed him to an office connected with the rebuilding of Jerusalem as Aeola Capitolona. At some point, Uncleus converted to Judaism, meeting with the vigorous opposition of the emperor, who sent three successive contingents of soldiers to arrest him. This is where, of course, the text that I read to you begins. We are told that each of the contingents failed to apprehend Uncleus because each time he managed to present a powerful theological argument in defense of his decision to convert. The soldiers were so impressed that they themselves elected to convert to Judaism. Two of the arguments that Uncleus presents deals with the unique relationship between God and his people. The first compares God to a torchbearer, unlike an ordinary king whose subjects illuminate his path. God himself lights the path for his people. The second argument focuses on the mezuzah. Normally, a king dwells in his palace and is protected by his servants who stand outside. However, God guards his servants on the outside while they dwell comfortably inside. Thus, in this view... The mezuzah no longer serves as only a reminder of our obligation to follow God's laws and precepts, but rather the mezuzah now symbolizes either God's protection over all his people or as over his protection of those who dwell in this particular house, serving almost as a type of amulet. If it is a type of amulet, 
we can easily understand why it is customary in certain circles to check the inside of the mezuzot, whose inhabitants have suffered an unexpected calamity or illness. A mezuzah, namely the inside scroll, which is deemed by experts to be unfit, does not offer its protective powers. Now, many scholars vehemently rejected this interpretation. And some, especially Rabbi Yosef Caro, suggested that Rambam, Maimonides understood Unclus to be saying that when the mezuzah succeeds in reminding one to follow the commandments, it is that observance of the commandments which ultimately leads God to provide protection. Of course, in Israel and Canada, and throughout the world, we find many secular non-observant Jews that make sure that a mezuzah is affixed to their front door. For them, one might suggest that it has evolved from being a reminder, as it seems to be described in Deuteronomy, to a more of an amulet or symbol of God's protection. Of course, it might also simply have become, over the course of the centuries, a, an identifier that those who live in the house are members of the Jewish people. And it's not unusual when proselytizing Christians come to a home in which there is a mezuzah affixed that they recognize that the inhabitants of that home are less likely to be interested in the message that the proselytizing Christians have to offer. Now, at the beginning of the show, I suggested that we were going to talk about three kinds of symbols. We were going to talk about the phylacteries, the boxes that one attaches to the arm and to the forehead, um, known in Hebrew as tefillin, and that we were going to speak about the mezuzah, that which we affix to the doorpost. And I suggested at the beginning of the show that we were also going to talk about the third identified uh, symbol, which is tzitzit, fringes which are attached to the four corners of garments according to the text, and a cord of blue is to be attached to the fringes. And the purpose of this ritual, according to Numbers 15, is to remind us of all the commandments of God so that we will observe them and not follow your heart and eyes in your lustful urge. Numbers suggest that this uh, wearing of the fringes is important as a daily reminder to the individual Jew of living within the covenant. These three symbols form the essence of traditional Jewish identity. And they serve as identifiers of those who are committed to a traditional Jewish way of life. There are many other reminders and symbols to be spoken about 
and certainly one for a future show, will be the star of David, known as Magin David. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you a good day. You can hear a rebroadcast of this show on the CHRI website or as a podcast from iTunes. Shalom. Shalom.